Nobody wants to support fascists. If I'm saying that I'm a fascist leader, people will not vote for me. This is an outdated model and people know this model lost in 20th century. So we don't want to live in a fascist state. It's not popular. We may want to live in a democratic state. And then if it so happens that the democratic state is led by Trump, who's destroyed all checks and balances, maybe it will not be fun. It will be a dictatorship, but they will not call themselves fascists. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Hello there, my name is Matt Major. I'm a summer intern at the Persuasion Institute, and I recently co-authored an article with a former professor of mine, Jacob Mackey. The piece is titled, The Kids Are All Right, and it is about our experience starting a student group on our campus, Occidental College, which is a small liberal arts college in Los Angeles. And by virtue of it being so, it might be expected to be, given the the general campus climate, many crises and upheavals that uh, you might have heard about. Cancel culture, so-called wokeness, political correctness to a fault, and an absolute myopia and unwillingness towards openness towards others and productive discourse. Contrary to our expectations and apprehensions, we were very much surprised and moreover impressed to find the joy and enthusiasm with which my peers took to constructive mutual discourse so long as an environment was created where principles of mutual respect were affirmed and upheld and people were given the guidance and support necessary for actual productive discourse. Now, all of this rested on taking ideas not as representatives of the worth of individual human beings, but as worthy of discussion in and of themselves, regardless of their content, and a willingness to face each other as human beings, no more, no less, and always maintain the respect and dignity that everyone deserves. And we had many different instances to test these principles, and we did so rather well. You can find the piece at www.persuasion.community. I hope you get a chance to read it and enjoy it. Thank you. Matt Major and Jacob Mackey's piece called The Kids Are All Right was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community. My guest today is Sergei Guriev. Sergei is a professor at Sciences Po in Paris. He was the chief economist at the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. And he is the author, among other books, of Spin Dictators, The Changing Face of Tyranny in the 21st Century. We talked about the changes in Russia over the last two decades the state of the Russian economy and why sanctions have not so far worked as well as some people might have imagined. And we discussed what the difference is between what Sergei calls spin dictators and populists within democratic countries on the one hand, and more traditional hard power dictators who openly use violence and intimidation to stay in power on the other hand. Sergey, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Yasha. I'm a big fan of the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. 
It's an honor to have you on. So one thing that I'm always interested in is, you know, there's this line that people go bankrupt very slowly and then all at once. And I actually think that when you think about dictatorships and the way in which they quash the freedoms of people, there's a similar phenomenon, which is something that people who've always lived in democracies don't always appreciate. They think, you know, the day the dictator gets elected, the freedoms are over, everything changes. But actually, it seems to me to be a much more gradual process often. So I guess what I'm wondering about is you as somebody who's always been speaking out for liberal values, who's a liberal economist, you were living under Putin's Russia for a very long time and then finally left in 2013. What were those changes like in the first years of Putin's reign? What changed between the turn of the millennium and 2013 when you left the country? Right. I fully agree with you that in many societies, this transformation is gradual when uh, step by step, the government takes away various freedoms. And it's a bit like in this uh, new mayor's uh, speech, when they came for communists, I didn't speak out because I was not a communist. And so they go one by one, media, courts, business people, civil society. And then at some point you discover that indeed the freedom space has shrunk so much that this is no longer a democracy. And indeed, for every person, the red line is different. And you can see that the regime qualitatively changed in 2014 when it attacked uh, Ukraine first time. You can talk about 2022 when it was a really brutal war and when Putin actually closed down all remaining independent media and announced Meta. American company, the holding company of Facebook and Instagram, an extremist organization. You can think about 2020 when Putin changed constitution and announced himself being able to run for another two, six-year terms, or 2020 when he, Navalny was poisoned. For me, it was um, several things at once. When Putin came back in 2012 as a president, he started to eliminate whatever hopes emerged during Medvedev's presidency during the protests in Moscow and other cities in 2011. And this assault on freedoms also touched people like myself who spoke too much about freedoms, about the importance of political institutions for economic development. As an economist, I was always advising the society on economics issues. As a public intellectual, I first and foremost spoke about economics. But in a country like Russia, economic development requires property rights protection, political competitions, checks and balances, fighting corruption, rule of law, everything which depends on politics. And so that is when I encountered my share of problems. And at some point, I just discovered that Putin's investigators, interrogators want to take away my freedom. I was warned to leave. Common friends told me that Putin is extremely unhappy. And unless I leave tomorrow, I may not be able to do it at any point later on. And so I just bought a one-way ticket and left. And for me, that was the line. And we don't know what would have happened, but I guess for every single person, it may happen sooner or later. Mikhail Khodorkovsky, uh, oil tycoon, the richest person in Russia, was arrested in 2003, very early on. The independent uh, TV channel and TV was pretty much destroyed in the first couple of years of Putin's rule. So you can see those lines anywhere and everywhere in Putin's 20 years in power. This is a universal question that always comes up in the context of who ends up going along with a dictator and who doesn't. But what do you think helped to determine in Russia who left early, who left perhaps a few months ago, and who is still on the side of Putin's regime? As an economist, 
I'm thinking, for example, of Elvira Nabulina, the governor of the, the Central Bank of Russia, who's playing a key role in helping to prop up the regime. You know, she's somebody who worked, as I understand it, for a set of international institutions in the 1990s, who was seen as a liberal economist for a long time. She's somebody who I imagine you know personally. What determines that she is on the side of making Putin's war economy work, and many of her former friends and acquaintances have fled the country? Yeah, so this is a great question. And indeed, I know Elvira Nabiulina for about 15 years, maybe more. Indeed, she is greatly respected, including in the central bankers community, which is a very international, meritocratic, I should say, community around the world. Even after 2014, she would be invited to major IMF meetings, central bank meetings around the world, and she would be praised for good monetary policy work. Yet she made her choice. She decided that she wants to make sure that Russian economy is run well. And this is something that I think you would sympathize with me, is it's a bit going back to political philosophy of Hannah Arendt. You need to be reflective. You need to think. Hannah Arendt was talking about smart people who were not uh, maniacs, but just they didn't think about certain issues. And that brought them to the wrong side. And I think for me, it was always very clear that I cannot be part of the system. While she believes that by sticking around right now, she's helping ordinary Russians. Because if she's replaced by somebody less capable, Russians will suffer from inflation, from economic uh, meltdown. And she's trying to save ordinary Russians. I disagree with that. You need to think about issues that you discuss on your podcast, that you write about in your books. To what extent the people whom she cares for will be better off or worse off as a result of this war, as a result of her work supporting the regime, financing the war, essentially. And the answer to this is very simple. Whatever she does to increase the resource base of this regime, to save money for this regime, doesn't go to Russian teachers or pensioners or students. It goes to pay for the war in Ukraine. It goes to finance killing ordinary Ukrainians. And this mental step is very hard to undertake because it's very critical of yourself. You need to tell yourself, my country is bad. And when I help my country, I'm actually helping killing innocent people. And so some people make this step and some people think by doing my small thing, by improving this particular part of policy space, I'm helping ordinary people. The problem is when Russia makes more money, it's not that Russian pensioners are getting more money. It's that Russian generals and soldiers are recruited to kill Ukrainians. And that's how it works. And this is what people who don't think about political economy, political institutions, political philosophy, this is what the people who don't think about those issues don't understand and make this horrible mistake. Help me understand the trajectory of Russia's economy. You know, it was economic chaos and sort of financial wild west in the 90s under Yeltsin. Putin was always understood to have stabilized the Russian economy, helped by rising gas and oil prices. But the view from Western economists was always that Russia nevertheless remained in some ways quite a primitive economy, that it was propped up by gas and oil, that it had a rising luxury sector and so on, but that it really was continuing to depend on those resources, but it hadn't modernized properly, in part for the reasons that you alluded to earlier, because it doesn't have stable institutions of a rule of law and so on. And so it wasn't able to make the kind of 
investments that you need to have leading companies around the world. In part, because of that view, many people assume that the pretty severe sanctions that Russia is now under from the West would have a very strong impact on life in the country, that the price of a ruble would crater, that the stock markets would crater in a lasting way, and that this would undermine Putin's war effort. At least so far, that does not seem to have been the case nearly as much as people expected. Putin, as you're saying, is continuing to have the financial resources to wage this war, and it does not seem as though he is in such a severe crisis domestically that it is undercutting his support. Why? Is our view of the Russian economy wrong? Is our view of the West's ability to impose significant financial sanctions wrong? What happened? The sanctions do work, but some sanctions work in an unexpected way. So one of the things which did happen and was really, really strong, which happened on the third day of the war when the West, in a united fashion, U.S. and EU together imposed sanctions on the Russian central bank, froze Russian government's stock of dollars. And that was a major hit, which was followed by certain macroeconomic turbulence. However, what happened afterwards, oil prices were so high that every day Putin would earn more and more dollars, replenishing this amount of resources he has to finance the war. And in that sense, it's not surprising that with such high oil prices, ruble became stronger. Ruble also became stronger because of something which was not expected. So US, Europe, the Western allies imposed export controls on Russia. So it's much harder for Russia today to import advanced technology. And this is something which was not expected, was the private sector's voluntary boycott, voluntary exodus. We have about 1,200 companies which exited Russia, which broke all the links with Russia. And so imports of stuff from the West to Russia collapsed much more than anybody expected. And this was something which was not dictated by the governments in the West. It was done by the private sector under reputational pressure. And this unexpected shock to Russian imports actually increased the value of the ruble. Because if you don't have any imports to spend your dollars on, you don't need the dollars. Dollars become cheaper, rubles become more expensive. Russian imports collapse by about a factor of two. And this is not just stuff like luxury goods, although those are included too, but stuff which is needed to produce cars, stuff which is needed to repair planes, stuff which is needed actually to produce modern tanks and high-precision rockets. So these things have actually happened. And interestingly, while Russian economy is hit, ruble is stronger than when the war began. But this is not something which reflects the strengths or competitiveness of Russian economy. It is a side effect of collapsing imports, which per se is a negative shock to the Russian economy. So Russian economy right now, it's not uh, in ruins, but it's going through uh, the worst recession in 30 years. So in 2008, 9, 2014, 15, 16, in 1998, the shock was not as big as this time around. So you may call it catastrophe or disaster. You may call it a very deep recession. But the truth is Russian economy is going through a very, very difficult time. Now, some industries are hit really badly. So I'll give you a statistics. Russian automotive industry produced less than 4,000 cars in May. So the collapse in production of cars in Russia is 30 times, 3-0. So this is really a big, big shock for the industry. Why? Because 
automotive industry is global industry. You cannot produce cars if you don't import anything. And so this is an example. The same would be with the aviation industry and so on. Airlines are really, really hit. But overall, Russian economy is hit, but not destroyed. It's not a Soviet economy. It's a market economy. It has uh, adjustment mechanisms. And in that sense, Russians are suffering. But it's not like the Soviet economy, which would just fell apart in 1991. So we don't expect that. On the other hand, it is also clear that sanctions will reduce Putin's ability to launch a new war, say in two years' time. And they also hit Russians' real inflation-adjusted incomes. So there will be an accumulation of unhappiness over the next months or years. So sanctions seems to me a topic that is incredibly ideological in how people talk about it and in which people have very little consistency when it comes to sanctioning a country to which for some reason or another they're sympathetic or where they think that perhaps their own country is exercising power in a way they're queasy about in general, then they start to say that sanctions are terrible. And when it comes to a regime or a country that they deeply dislike, then they're the first to call for very strong forms of sanctions. How should we think about sanctions as a tool of foreign policy in a consistent way? What should the goal of sanctions be in relation to Russia? And what can we realistically hope that they will achieve? So this is a great question. And basically, different people, as you rightly said, evaluate sanctions in different ways because they also assume different goals of sanctions. So think about Iran. Sanctions against Iran were intended to change Iran's behavior and bring Iran to negotiating table. By that account, sanctions have succeeded because the deal was signed in 2015. And so this is usually the idea of the sanctions to bring the violating party to the bargaining table and negotiate a deal or to deter something or to change behavior. And now Russia is a separate case because here sanctions no longer can deter or threaten Putin. Putin doubles down. He showed that he doesn't care about the economy. He doesn't care about the facts I just mentioned, that Russia doesn't produce cars any longer, or Russians can no longer fly to Europe. Russians cannot buy IKEA or McDonald's goods. That's okay, right? But what Mr. Putin cares about is whether he can continue the war against Ukraine. And the goal of sanctions now is actually to limit his ability to kill Ukrainians, or for that matter, any other people in neighboring countries, which may be his next war. And so the sanctions now are trying to reduce the amount of resources he has, deprive him of resources to launch new wars or to continue this war. And that's a completely different goal. And by that measure, I would say sanctions are succeeding because, as I mentioned, he cannot produce modern tanks, modern rockets, because he needs semiconductors, he needs high-grade steel, he needs jet power engines for the planes. So all of that is produced in the West. Chinese uh, subsidies are not great. And so in that sense, these sanctions are succeeding. And on top of that, the sanctions targeting his revenues are very important because what's happening now, he cannot uh, announce uh, martial law or mass mobilization because that would be highly unpopular. Instead, he's paying the soldiers. He's paying soldiers money to recruit them, and he recruits people usually from poorer parts of Russia for whom these amounts are an order of magnitude higher than their regular wage. So he needs cash. And until we have an oil embargo in place, which kicks in only in December, he has the cash because oil prices are high. He keeps selling oil and gas, 
he has this cash to continue fighting this war. And of course, the oil embargo, which was agreed on in uh, the last day of May and will kick in in December, is a game changer. Let's change gears a little bit. So you have a great new book with a colleague, Daniel Treisman, that's talking about spin dictators. The basic observation is that the most famous dictators we might think of in history used force and violence in a very straightforward way. And today we have a new crop of authoritarian rulers who are a little bit more subtle, who appear to have more democratic legitimacy, who are much more conscious of how to use certain forms of public relations in order to make themselves look good. What differentiates a spin dictator, on the one hand, from the old crop of dictators who also had the propaganda machines, and on the other hand, from populist politicians within countries that remain democratic? Spin dictators are dictators. That's very important. So this is what differentiates them from democratic countries. What is a democracy and what is a dictatorship? In political science, as you know, democracy is a regime, the rules of the game, of which include electing leaders and choosing policies through fair and competitive and free elections. This is not what spin dictatorships are. Spin dictatorships may have elections, but those are not free and fair. They may deny that they have censorship, but they do. And in that sense, even if you have a democratic facade, this is a dictatorship. But the distinction between the new style of dictators and the old style is that the old dictators were proud to be dictators. They openly said, we have propaganda, we have censorship, we have ideology, we terrorize our citizens. New dictators said, no, we are Democrats. We don't wear military uniform. We wear civilian suits like Democrats. We speak like Democrats. In our research, we actually show that content of speech of spin dictators is identical to the content of speech of democratic leaders and significantly different from those of old-style dictators. The spin dictators, they do censor, but they do it in a deniable, covert way. They co-opt media owners. They sometimes quietly threaten journalists. They harass opposition leaders, but not on political grounds. It's very common to put your political opponent in jail, but as a tax evader or a fraudster. Or uh, in Turkey, they put uh, one Kurdish uh, politician on a charge of faking a medical certificate to avoid an army service. So you don't say that we have political prisoners. You say... We are a democracy. We can have political prisoners. We can have censorship. And even to this day, the Russian constitution actually bans censorship, even though nobody has any doubts that uh, Russia has censorship. Soviet Union had a big censorship ministry with thousands of people actually employed to read everything and censor everything from newspapers to plays. And in that sense, that's the difference. Pretending to be Democrats or proud to be dictators. You mentioned violence. This, I think, is very important. This is something that we can measure. We look at numbers of political killings, political prisoners. And uh, basically, if you want to deny that you're a dictator and you terrorize your population, you have to use limited violence. Because if you kill too many people, that is observable. So current dictators are much less violent because they want to hide and deny violence. While Hitler, Stalin, Mao... Pol Pot would kill people by thousands and tens of thousands, and Stalin actually by hundreds of thousands. 
that's fascinating and really clarifying. One of the questions in the debate at the moment is whether or not to call some of the new crop of dictators, as well as some of the populist leaders who perhaps want to turn the countries into dictatorships, fascists. And it sounds to me like you have a response to that, which is that fascists are part of the old crop of dictators, that they precisely have these open forms of repression, that they openly oppose democracy, and perhaps that they really want to mobilize all of society in service of the ideology in a totalitarian manner. And the new crop of commentators in a search for the most extreme piece of vocabulary like to call fascists are in fact spin dictators, right? They avoid that form of overt violence. They claim to be Democrats and they are perfectly content with citizens sitting at home and saying, I don't care about politics as long as they don't challenge the regime. So do you think it's a mistake to call whether it is Vladimir Putin or Recep Erdogan a fascist or to think of somebody like Donald Trump, as many American commentators claim, as an aspiring fascist? Well, aspiring fascists and fascists are different things. Maybe Donald Trump would love to be a fascist. Maybe Donald Trump would love to be a spin dictator. And in the book, we actually talk about Trump and Berlusconi, who are democratic leaders who use spin dictators' tools, but democratic institutions so far turned out to be stronger than they thought. And so these politicians lost their jobs. So I think these are two slightly different questions. I'll get to that next. I think there is an obvious question about whether authoritarian populists within democracies are aspiring spin dictators. But that's different, I think, from whether or not the nature of a politics is, is fascist. That's correct. So coming back to your original question, somebody like Orban is a spin dictator, not a really fascist. And uh, I think in the public debate, we often use terminology which is slightly different from scientific debate. And sometimes you use words like Nazi or fascist or dictator or other terms that actually have definitions in the scientific work. But for journalistic uh, debate, sometimes we go a bit too far. So Orban is so talented in pretending to be a Democrat that actually some political scientists still view Hungary as a perfect democracy. If you look at the polity data set, Hungary is democracy. If you look at VDEM, you see that Hungary is an electoral autocracy. Uh, so this is the huge difference between somebody who pretends to be a Democrat and somebody who openly is proud to be a dictator, a fascist, or a Nazi, or a despot. So a lot of people would tell us, actually, that Mussolini was reasonably soft. But that is only because he was soft relative to Hitler. If you actually look at how you, Mussolini used violence, he was very violent, and at times very public about this violence. And that is where fascists were proud of their ideology, proud of their set of core principles, which would include being open about not de being democratic, about rejecting the principles of what we now call Western democracy or liberal democracy. So let's start to think about the relationship between populists and democratic regimes and spin dictators. My sense from this conversation is that authoritarian populists, populists who think that they alone truly represent the people and that anybody who disagrees with them is by virtue of that fact illegitimate, are always to some extent aspiring spin dictators. If they really got their way, if they really managed to stay in power for a long time, if they really managed to overcome the resistance of the institution that they claim is illegitimate, they would wind up being spin dictators. Is that fair as a one-to-one -one relation, or do you think that there are deeper differences between 
let's say, Donald Trump and perhaps Silvio Berlusconi on one end and Viktor Orban and Recep Erdogan on the other end. So in general, this correlation exists. And this story of early Erdogan or Orban is exactly a populist who essentially destroys checks and balances exactly because of what you just said. Why do you need checks and balances if all the good people are the same and they're all like me? So you just need me, one person. I will represent you. Why do you need parliaments? Why do you need judges? And then eventually you go through this process, which Putin has gone through as well, and you build a spin dictatorship. So that's exactly right. And in the process, you continue to pretend to be a Democrat. In some cases, it doesn't work. Some populists never manage to remove democratic institutions. And a lot of people would call Syriza left-wing populists. They were in power. They lost election. They stepped down. On the other hand, you also have spin dictators who were not populist. So Lee Kuan Yew was definitely not a populist. And we count him as one of the pioneers of this particular regime. Nur Sultan Nazarbayev, Kazakhstan's leader, was definitely not a populist. And he was one of the most successful. By now, he's no longer a president, not even a supreme leader. And his family is kicked out of power. But he built a country and ran a country for three years. So he was also quite a successful spin dictator. So there is no one-to-one correspondence. But this trend you're describing is a very salient trend. And many populists actually try to do that. I have a colleague in Sian Spo, Maurice Shularik, and together with his two co-authors, he wrote a paper tracing the economic performance of populist leaders uh, for the last 100 years. And uh, he looks at evolution of institutions after populists come to power. And on average, if you have a populist in government today, you should expect that rule of law will be undermined, media freedom will be suppressed, and the populists will not step down after the term expires because they will try to grab power and undermine checks and balances. So this is completely normal. This exists, but there are exceptions as well. So that's very interesting. So you're saying there's many ways to becoming a spin dictator, right? You might inherit a post-Soviet state in some kind of way. You might perhaps even come to power as a founder of a state. And being a populist, as in the case of Hungary or Turkey, is only one way towards power. What about the inverse claim, though? Are there examples of populists who manage to retain power and don't turn into spin dictators? Or is the goal, whether conscious or not, of every populist to turn themselves into a spin dictator in your terminology? Well, uh, you've written about populists yourself, so that's probably a question to you, to what extent this is common. But uh, there are sometimes external constraints. I mentioned Greece. In Greece, of course, that was an important role for external creditors who constrained what the Greek government could and could not do. You can also think about uh, democratic populists in Latin America who would be kicked out. Whatever they wanted to do, they would be kicked out because of incompetence in macroeconomic policies. So you may also see something like this happening in democratic countries. I'm actually really worried that we may have populists in democratic countries like the United States, where you are now, where somebody like Trump would love to do something like this. And in that sense, yes, politicians always want to stay in power. And in democratic countries, term limits count. In democratic countries, checks and balances matter. And populists always want to destroy checks and balances. And since they start as democratic leaders, they're more likely to remain in power as spin dictators rather than fear dictators. And there is a reason for this. Spin dictatorships are now so numerous 
because this model is a better fit for the modern global economy. For the world, where being an openly repressive dictator is not a great model. So if you're a populist leader who wants to become a dictator, it's probably a better idea to pretend to be a Democrat. Why? Because whatever we say and whatever actually your own work talks about, democracy is still very popular. There are many people who don't like democracy, but nobody wants to live in Nazi Germany or Stalin's Soviet Union anymore. You may want to live in a country, you want to move from parliamentary to presidential republic, but you don't want to live in a place where you have mass repression. And mass repression is not popular. So people would rather live in a democracy. And so populists who want to become dictators want to pretend conserving the democratic institutions. I agree with that. In fact, one of the reasons, and that was perhaps implicit in the question I asked earlier, why I'm very resistant to calling somebody like Trump a fascist is that it actually can make us too complacent. If somebody was running on openly anti-democratic message, as many totalitarians in the 20th century were, I don't think that they could win power in the United States of 2022 or 2024, and I don't think they could be re-elected if people knew that that's what we were up to. One of the very smart adaptations of populism is to say, no, 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 I'm the true democrat. In fact, I'm fighting against people who really are anti-democratic. So if you care about democracy, you need to vote for me. And that's not obviously something that I believe to be accurate. It's certainly not something that influences how I would vote. But it is a much more powerful way of gaining power and of gaining that democratic legitimacy in the first instance. And that's why I think thinking of these movements as fascist is not only wrong as a matter of political science, it's, I think, wrong as a matter of understanding what power it has and therefore how to fight against it. Nobody wants to support fascists. If I'm saying that I'm a fascist leader, people will not vote for me. This is an outdated model, and people know this model lost in 20th century. So we don't want to live in a fascist state. It's not popular. We may want to live in a democratic state. And then if it so happens that the democratic state is led by Trump, who's destroyed all checks and balances, maybe it will not be fun. It will be a dictatorship, but they will not call themselves fascists. Now, what is the end game of spin dictatorship? Because here's something that I thought about a lot using the language of populist dictatorships, but I think it's basically the same question, which is, you know, you're a spin dictator. At the beginning, perhaps you have some real legitimacy, either because you are the founder of a state and there comes legitimacy with that, or perhaps because you have won democratic elections and that's how you first managed to entrench yourself in office. And so you can retain your power through these mechanisms you talk about. But at some point, there's going to be a crisis of legitimacy. There's going to be a severe economic crisis, or there's some popular protests over something, and you need to figure out how to respond to them. And at that point, it seems to me that you sort of have two choices. You can either accede to that pressure, to that unpopularity. You can recognize that you've lost the election and give into that and leave power, or you have to ratchet up repression and violence. But if you ratchet up repression and violence, at some point you pass the point of being a spin dictator and you become a dictator because you're shooting at the crowd, because you're jailing enough of the opposition politicians that nobody is fooled anymore by the idea that they you know, cheated on their taxes or you know, falsified their medical certification. So is spin dictatorship a phase which eventually has to resolve into 
a return to more democratic institution or a much more openly dictatorial regime? Or is it possible to sustain a spin dictatorship for decades and decades? So we think about this as a phase which indeed transition to democracy, but may also go back in history. And one well-known example is, of course, Venezuela, where Chavez was a charismatic spin dictator. His successor, Maduro, is a classical repressive fear dictator. And this is where you can see how the regime goes back in time, destroys the economy, destroys the country, but still is in power. If somebody told me 10 years ago that economy can shrink by a factor of 4 or 5, 20% of the population would live, and still the regime would be in power. I would be surprised. But we have uh, totalitarian regimes like North Korea. We have Syria, right? We have Venezuela, where these regimes are quite uh, persistent. But you're right. So basically, even spin dictators have their own problems. They're better suited for today's reality. So they are much better in terms of, for example, attracting foreign direct investment. Because if you're a foreign direct investment and you're getting a call from North Korea, maybe your board of directors will not be very happy, right? Saying that we should probably should not invest in North Korea. You get a call from pre-war Russia, and many investors would say, well, they do have elections. Well, especially before poisoning Navalny, they do have some opposition, they do have independent media. This is not a perfect democracy, but it's not North Korea. And this is what helps those regimes to have more resources, to be more competitive, and to survive longer. But eventually, they do face this problem that you mentioned. In order to grow economically, they need educated class. Today's uh, economy depends on people with tertiary education, depends on creative class, depends on people who know what's going on in the world so they can import technology and develop their own technology. And these people are also people who understand that you are not a Democrat. And so the more people like this are around, the more difficult it is to silence them through cooptation or selected uh, repression. And as you rightly said, you may have to repress so many that it gets out of control and you go back in time. We started with Russia. This is what happened to Russia. You can say that this transformation was completed in 2022 when Putin went to the war, probably hoping that he will be able to preserve the spin model. He would have a short victorious war like he had in 2014. He would still allow for independent media, no outright censorship of Facebook, but he saw that it doesn't work and he had to close down the independent media, introduce wartime censorship. A conversation like we are having now in Russia would be punishable by up to 15 years in jail. And some people are on their way to 15 years in jail as we speak, unfortunately. So this is where this transformation was completed. But actually, this transformation started before. Does this mean that this transformation is inevitable? The answer is no. There are many spin dictatorships that get uh, transitioned to democracies. And one example around Russia would be Armenia. In 2018, a spin dictator wanted to stay in power, and he lost. And the opposition leader, just through mass protests, came to power, and Armenia is now a democracy. So I think this teases me up perfectly for my last question, which is, what does your concept of spin dictatorship, which I think is really useful, teach us about how to resist aspiring spin dictators and how to resist actual spin dictators? If the tools of power that they use are different, what does that mean for the kinds of tools that the opposition has available to them and for how best to make use of them? Right. We actually talk about that in the last chapter of the book. And I think this is a natural question we need to ask. And the first answer to this question is to be watchful. 
to be careful, to understand that these are dictatorships, not democracies. So whatever they say about themselves, whatever suits they wear, however often they travel to Davos, you know that these are not democracies because they are running not free and fair elections, they control media, they spin the narrative like spin doctors and democracies, and their political opponents do not face the same chances when election time comes. And so in that sense, this is very, very important. Another thing is these regimes are very likely to export their own corruption and to interfere in their neighbors' affairs in the Western political institutions as well. These regimes, we talk about this, why these regimes are by nature are likely to be corrupt and likely to export corruption. And so uh, the Western countries should think about fighting their enablers at home. So you should understand that whatever happens to this expert of corruption, the spin dictators are doing well. So if corruption is not uncovered, their enablers help change Western policies towards those dictators. If corruption is uncovered, the spin dictators come back home and say, look, the West is also corrupt. There is nothing uh, better than our model. We may be imperfect democracy, but the West is a corrupt democracy as well. And so whenever there is a narrative which helps them, that is something that should focus the minds of the West. And I know you write in your books a lot about putting the Western house in order. This is good for the West, but it's also good for pushing back the narrative of spin dictators. You have inequality, discrimination, problems at home. That's good for spin dictators' narrative in their countries. And so putting your own house in order actually helps to win that war. And another front line that we discuss in the book is international organizations. These guys care about international organizations. They try to capture them. We recently saw the role of Erdogan and NATO and Orban in the European Union. A couple of years ago, we saw an attempt by China to capture Interpol. And so all these things need to be really, really carefully thought of because these regimes pretend to be democracies. And so they try to abuse the tools of democratic, liberal, rule-based global order. And so we need to think about those issues a lot. We need to remember that it is in their interest to hijack the institutions the West has built. And so there are several front lines on which uh, the West should resist those guys. One thing I would mention is the West should not fully isolate those regimes because these regimes are in trouble because within the regimes you have growing educated class, civil society, and these uh, citizens should be supported, should be provided information, should be educated. That is eventually the root of their own decline, the root of the decline of the spin dictators. And in that sense, engagement with the civil society in those countries, wherever possible, whenever possible, is a great idea. Sergey Guriev, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much, Yasha, for inviting me. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be liked, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner, 
for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.